0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, today is going to feel like it goes at a snail's pace. What do I mean by that? I mean the next few verses that we're going to be reading in Romans chapter 5. That's your hint to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. In in these verses, St. Paul is going to pack a whole lot of Theology into just a few verses. Stuff that people write entire books about, the kind of thing that you can do an entire hour long sermon on just covering a single verse. That's the kind of thing we're covering today. So we're not going to get very far for the people who are excited to be done with the series on Romans. Sorry, pal, you're with this book for life. I uh, recall one pope having the book of Romans read to him. Every single day, simply because, well, you can always read it and get something new out of it. That's how deep St. Paul writes. But before we start, uh, could you do me a favor? Could you tell a friend about the Very Lutheran Project? Tell somebody that maybe they should take a listen to it. Right now, in Lutheran circles, there's a whole lot of focusing on theology and there's a lot of history, a lot of comparative theology, and I'm not necessarily knocking that, I think it has its place, but it does tend to get overemphasized. We're Lutherans. We should be all about sola scriptura. Before we get into a whole lot of theology, we should be looking at the source of all of our theology, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, from which we can actually understand why we believe what we believe. In all honesty, any confessional Lutheran out there, and I speak as a confessional Lutheran, you should be reading your Bible ten times more than the Lutheran confessions or theology textbooks. You should be in the Bible way, way, way more than anything else, than any other book. It is the foundation of our faith, our doctrine, our morals, our life. And, to be honest with you, I think that should be the main goal of the Very Lutheran Project should be a back to the Bible movement for Lutherans everywhere. But if you tell a friend, I'd be very, very appreciative. Now let's go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 12. <clears throat> therefore, oh man, he's doing it again. St. <laughs> Paul saying, Therefore, demanding me to do the corny pastor thing of saying, What is the therefore? Therefore. <laughs> Well, maybe you recall our last episode, how we went through Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where St. Paul says we've been justified by faith, and that brings us peace through Jesus Christ. We got into the dichotomy, or the two aspects of our salvation, which is the death of our Lord Jesus, which pays for our sins, being God's mercy on us, But that's not quite enough for what God wanted to accomplish. So our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through his atonement for us that we're given that clean slate. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're all the way saved. It is in Christ's resurrection that we receive justification by faith. That's why in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Our Lord Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Remember, the word justification, or the verb decaiuo in uh, Greek, that is to be declared right or righteous. Now, a righteous man deserves a righteous man's reward, And Jesus, being the most righteous, received the reward of the righteous, rising from the dead and living eternally. So by faith, faith in Christ, we receive the same gracious reward that he receives, except Christ being perfect deserves it. We receive it as grace. So mercy and grace going together in our salvation. And through this whole thing, God reconciles us sinners to him. Now, does that mean we expect a perfect, happy, easy life? Because after all, righteous people deserve a righteous man's reward. And if I'm declared righteous, that's what I should expect. Absolutely not. St. Paul does bring up the theology of the cross here in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5, saying, you know, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, given all of verses 1 through 11 here, everything St. Paul has been saying, he then starts verse 12 with, therefore, And from here, he's going to be explaining the reconciliation in the context of sin and, well, sin nature and the inheritance of sin. So we read all of verse 12 now. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. So, sin came into the world through one man. Who is that? That is Adam. It is Adam who is responsible for the spread of sin into the world. How does that work? Well, our first instinct is to, in our flesh, say, wait a minute adam didn't bring sin into the world eve did she was the first to trespass the commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that really the case let's assume that it is the case for a moment if that's the case that eve truly is the first human being to have sinned that still does not mean that eve is responsible for bringing sin into the world God made all of creation with a very specific hierarchy. After all, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, says, you know, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now that is an apostolic commandment that we receive from the first century AD, but that is still the design that God has for marriage, even before Christ walked the earth. The husband is in charge The husband is responsible for his wife. He is the one who, well, says the buck stops here. He is the one who is going to be responsible over everything. So even if Eve was the first sinner, Adam is responsible for that. But I'm not exactly convinced that Eve was the very first one, the very first human being to sin in the first place. Let's go ahead and turn real quick. We're going to put a finger or a bookmark or something in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see something very interesting. If we're here in Genesis 3, we read from the first verse, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, right then, off the bat, we might be saying, see, Eve was the first person to sin. She was told not to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. and a Long title for that tree, but she was told not to eat of that forbidden fruit, and then she did. She listened to the serpent, so her sin before eating the fruit was probably some sort of self-idolatry. She's listening to the serpent, and she's considering the blasphemies that the serpent is saying. You know, God's holding out on you. He's deceiving you. You could become a goddess, but, mm, you know, oh well, what are you gonna do? And oh, by the way, he lied. You're not gonna die. Eve clearly, at this point, was making an idol out of herself by listening to the serpent, adding this syncretism with what the serpent was saying versus what God was saying. And that makes it sound like, yeah, definitely, case closed, she's the first person to sin. But let's reread Genesis 3 verse 6 here and see if that's really the case. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh, Adam was there the entire time, wasn't he? He was there the entire time all this is going on, and now clearly as he knows the commandments of God, and he knows he is supposed to be the leader of the household, he's not stopping this. He's not shutting the serpent's mouth. He's not doing anything to prevent his wife from doing this. He's failing to do the basic job of love and protection that a husband is supposed to give for his wife. Even if we don't say that Adam was the very first to sin, it could be very well simultaneous. That as Eve is making an idol of herself and as she's eating this fruit, Adam is abdicating his office as husband, as patriarch here, by permitting this whole circus to go on. But it gets even worse. In Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces curses upon humanity. And the very first thing he says in Genesis three seventeen to Adam is, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is it the ground because of you. Adam not only heard the serpent. He not only failed to stop what was going on as the serpent tempted Eve. In addition to all of this, he starts making an idol out of his wife. Because he'd rather listen to the voice of his wife speaking to him than listen to the voice and the command of God. So he sinned worse than Eve did. He failed in leadership, was listening to the false doctrine given by the devil here in Eden, and, to top that all off, he decided that what his wife said to him was more important than what God said to him. Clearly, there is more sin here on the part of Adam than there is Eve. And even if it was simultaneous, and even if Eve sinned first, Adam is to blame. He is the responsible party, even though in all likelihood he was also the very first to sin because he did not stop all this from happening in the first place. Then, St. Paul says that death came through sin just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. What do we mean by that? We weren't supposed to die. Death is not a natural thing. Death occurs because of sin, at its very root. It is a punishment upon us for sin. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, Meaning, yeah, it wasn't a poison fruit, Adam and Eve didn't die immediately, but they did die spiritually, and then their body died as well. The rotting that we see in our own flesh, our maggot sack, as Luther liked to call it, that's on account of our sin. Our ultimate perishing and departing this mortal coil is because of that. But that means that wasn't supposed to be the case. It was supposed to be the case that nothing ever died ever. (laughs) But now everybody is shackled to it. And that leads us, as a reader, just as we raised the first objection of, what about Eve? Eve Eve sinned before Adam. Now our flesh also opines, that's not fair, because why do I have to die because of what Adam did? And St. Paul thankfully answers that objection of, How come I'm dying because of this one guy uh, in the same verse? He says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You do not die on account of Adam's sin. You die on account of your sin. St. Paul makes that very clear. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, do we have original sin? Absolutely. But let's get into what that means exactly. There is a concept of federal headship that we see in uh, Calvinist circles. The idea is, is that everyone is under the ban, so to speak, under the punishment of death because Adam was our federal representative. He was the one who represented all of humanity, and therefore if he fails and if he deserves death, God looks at that and says, oh... Therefore, all of humanity deserves death. And that's, that's not exactly how it works. That's not what scripture says. A federal headship is often used uh, more as an interpretive tool. I mean, it, it does make sense in, in some way, shape, or form. But St. Paul says it's because of your sin that you die, not Adam's sin. And Adam does not represent you when you sin. If sin leads to the punishment of death, then that is what kills us. And does this necessarily deny original sin, though? Not at all. The idea of original sin is that it is a nature sin. Sin infects our nature, as we will see in Romans chapter 7 once we get there, probably a few years from now. The idea is it is a nature sin, a concupiscence that infects us like a mold or a fungus that gets inside of us, worms its way in, that we do inherit from Adam. Now, with that said, though, That leads to yet another objection coming from our flesh that says, well, Eve was the first one that sinned, not Adam. But then it says, hey, wait, I should not be held accountable for Adam's sin. And then the Bible replies, no, you're being held accountable for your sin. And then there's the argument that, well, I couldn't help it. I have this nature sin, this original sin, this concupiscence or desire to sin that That is, making me sin. I have no choice. How can I possibly be blamed and condemned for this? Well, it's easy, really. You have no excuse. Yes, we do have an original sin, a concupiscence that tempts us. Our old Adam tries to get us to sin. But think about who you are and what you are. Do you have a mouth and vocal cords? Then you can tell the truth instead of lying. You have that capability. Do you have hands with all your fingers attached, your little fingies? Then you can give generously to people instead of stealing. You can help heal people instead of harming them, right? Do you have feet and working legs? I mean, even if you have to be in a wheelchair, this still applies, but you are capable of going to where you should go instead of going where you shouldn't go. Do you have a brain? Do you think? Do you have the the soul to be able to process thoughts and information in your mind and think with intentions? Well then theoretically you have all the self-control in the world that you would need to think good thoughts and not bad thoughts. But we do anyway. Every single day we sin and it is our fault. We cannot escape responsibility from our sins. And that sucks. It's okay to say that, guys. It's okay to say that, wow, this, this really blows. <laughs> I can't help it, but I have no excuse. Strictly speaking, it was within my power to not sin, but I sinned anyway. And I committed sins of omission where I didn't do what I was supposed to. And I committed sins of commission where I did what I wasn't supposed to do. And I have no excuse. None whatsoever. So I personally deserve to die. I deserve all the punishments of death and hell that are promised to those who violate God's law. There's no way around that. So then comes another objection, and the whole book of Romans answers this objection the objection that, well, I shouldn't have to be going through this. I didn't choose to be born in this world, this isn't fair. I shouldn't be in a situation where I'm held so accountable to all of this, and even if Adam is responsible for bringing sin into the world, but he's not responsible for my sin, it's still, he still did screw everything up, and everything is terrible, ultimately because of him. And you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that is unfair. But guess what, guys? Jesus came to die on the cross for you. He did something to fix it. Yes, it is unfair when you think about, well, generally how your sin nature, inheriting that from your mother and your father who inherited their sin from their mothers and fathers, who inherited their sin from your great-grandparents, and so on and so forth until you get to Adam who messed everything up. Yes, that is unfair, but God sent a solution to that he sent his only son to die for you this is what st paul is getting at throughout the fifth chapter that he is the one who won that reconciliation jesus won peace for us and a promise of a solution to all this evil around us and within us to fix it god knows that it's unfair to you you did not ask to be born into a world of sin You did not choose that, and it is not fair for you to be held automatically accountable for every little mess-up and slip-up that you were, well, even as a kid, ignorant of. But if we raise the objection of ignorance, maybe as some last-ditch effort to try to weasel out of all of this, is St. Paul going to let us do that? No, not at all. Uh, In verse 13, he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So the first clause here, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. If there was sin in the world, therefore death was in the world, because that is the punishment for sin. And it's before the law was given by this, because he's going to mention Moses in the 14th verse, he's talking about the law given on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. But remember that in chapter 2, verse 15, let's turn there to make sure I don't mess it up. It says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, Even if you don't have the law revealed to you, you still have a conscience. You still have a conscience that tells you whether or not what you're doing is right or wrong. You don't have an excuse. Now, somebody might point to, but sin is not counted where there is no law in this verse, and maybe try to say, well, yeah, but look at this. There's a special kind of mercy for the ignorant. And that, I don't think that's the case. And what circumstance? Is there no law? There is no law when God looks at you and your faith in Jesus Christ. Even before Jesus walked the earth, people did still trust in the promise of salvation. Even before Moses, there was the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3:15, which again we should go ahead and turn there real quick and read it. It's very important to keep this in mind. St. Paul, I think in this verse, is really getting at he's not denying salvation for everybody that came before Jesus Christ. So our Lord says in Genesis 3 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, telling the serpent, hey, there is going to be a point in which all of this is undone by the seed of the woman. People trusted in that. That was the plan for salvation, that somebody was going to come up and undo all of this. That was their gospel in that day. So before The law was given at Sinai and before the gospel was fully articulated at the cross, we do have a kind of law and gospel dynamic still there. So sin indeed was in the world before the law was given at Sinai, but sin is not counted where there is no law. See, I love this about St. Paul. He is constructing these bulletproof, ironclad sentences that there's There's no way you can really fully object to what he's saying. He is explaining the faith in just a few words. My goodness, did this guy, like, spend three hours on every single sentence that he wrote for his epistles? (laughs) It's nuts. But, at the end of the day, that's the point. Sin came into the world through Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So Adam introduces sin into the world, and that leads to the dynamic that we see constantly throughout human history, people dying for their own sins dying as in being held accountable, first being spiritually dead, then being physically and spiritually dead, whether or not they knew about the law. Because they had a conscience, as uh, Romans 2.15 says, God put that there as the witness of the law. So death was everywhere. In verse 14, St. Paul continues, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So let's cover that first part. Death reigned despite people's ignorance. And despite them having a vague gospel to hold on to, death still reigned. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, why would he have this kind of just-in-case? Well, I doubt that it's him anticipating another objection. I doubt that he really thinks somebody in the Roman congregation is going to go, Hey, I didn't eat a forbidden fruit, so I shouldn't die. That's, that's how it works, right? I, yeah, I lie sometimes, and yeah, I, I steal some stuff, but I didn't eat no fruit, so I shouldn't die. I don't think St. Paul's trying to get ahead of that. The idea is, though... St. Paul is saying it's not like Adam's sin, because Adam sinned even though he heard God's voice, God being right there in front of him telling him, hey, don't eat this fruit. Mankind generally sins without the kind of benefit of direct revelation like that. At least that's what the uh, Lutheran study Bible here says. Adam violated a specific command that he heard from God. Others may not have heard the command as clearly as Adam did, but they still Sinned. So he's saying, yeah, even even if you didn't have the same kind of advantage that Adam had, the same kind of advantage that St. Paul goes over for Jews in general in the first century who grew up with the law, who knew better, even more than anybody else. They had the oracles of God, they had the law, they had the everything that you would need to understand where they were. Adam had those same advantages having heard, hey, don't eat this fruit. He still sinned. But even if you don't have what Adam had, even if you don't have what the Jews had, if you're totally ignorant of all of this, you are still guilty. And so death has still reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, this is going to close it off here. It says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. What do we mean by that? Well, in typology, a type is somebody who foreshadows another thing some sort of clear connection. St. Paul is saying Adam is one of the many Christological types. He is a type of Christ, somebody who by his life and by the things that happen to him foreshadows everything about Christ's ministry, his death, and resurrection. So how is Adam a type? Adam is a type because he is the firstborn of humanity. Much in the same way, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And true, there's a difference. Adam is a created being. Jesus Christ is uncreated. He is eternal. But the point still stands. A firstborn, monogenes. Second, Adam is the forefather of all of humanity. It is all of humanity who springs from Adam ultimately. You know, he is our first ancestor. So, too, would we say that Christ, who saves us, is the true head of regenerate humanity. He is the one who is the source of all of us who are saved, because he is the one who saved us. And it keeps going. There's even more interesting parallels here. The church is the bride of Christ, Eve is the bride of Adam. Now, Jesus. Receives his bride in a very similar way that Adam received his bride. God created Eve by taking Adam's rib from him and forming Eve out of that. Jesus receives his bride, the church, by his blood, in all a spear going right in between those ribs. Eve was taken from the side of Adam. The church was gathered to Jesus. Well, through a, something being put right in that side, a spear through which we see that water and blood mixed together but not blending. So in typology here, there are a ton of these all throughout the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament is the gospel. In a way people could understand at the time, there is something called progressive revelation but the gospel ends up preached by person after person after person who lived in a way that reflected something about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's all the time I got for you today, and we covered, I think, a grand total of like four verses. <laughs> Please expect more of the same as we go through this, because this is the one of the richest texts in all of Holy Scripture, and I'm excited to get back to more of it next week. Amen and amen.